There is a debate within the plant-based community, vegans and vegetarians, around the idea of making plant-based foods taste like meat. Many will say that simulating the taste of meat goes against the ethos of eating meat, um, eating a meat-free diet. But there is the opposing argument that to get meat eaters to switch to plant-based, you need to offer something that appeals to them, something meaty. At Juicy Marbles, not only are they simulating meat, but in their new ribs offering, they also make the simulated bones edible. I speak to Vladimir Mikovic about bones and brands, the future of cultivated meat and plant-based food, misinformation and sustainability, algorithms and much, much more. I'm Alex Crisp and welcome to the Future of Food interviews. So, um, nice to meet you, Vladimir. Uh, thank you for agreeing to come on to the Future of Foods podcast. And you are the CEO and founder of Juicy Marbles, which um, makes uh, plant-based meat alternatives. Um, so, uh, I want one correction here. I am not the CEO. You I not am the CEO. no, I'm not the CEO. I'm, I am one of the co-founders, but I am the CBO. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it's the chief brand officer okay well yeah. that's interesting okay um all right so just to start with uh i mean would i call you vladimir or do people call you vlad uh so yeah yeah vlad is okay vlad is okay i mean it, yeah. it has connotations doesn't it in the west vlad you know yeah vlad, yeah. vlad the drac Vlad Dracula. The Dracula, the Impaler, the, the Putin, there's all these Vlads oh, yeah, that are of course, Putin, uh, yeah. uh, tarnishing uh, the reputation yeah, yeah. of us other Vladimirs. There's a lot of great Vladimirs out there, yes. Um, okay, so Vladimir, could you uh, just tell us just a little bit about yourself and Juicy Marbles? Mm. Uh, what about myself? Well, how did you become interested in this area? Let's start with that, shall we? Good question. Um, it's quite random, though. You know, I, I don't have this inspiring life story where I begin with something that in, happened in my youth and that it was just like, a, I think it started with selfishness. Like uh, around my 20s, I um, started thinking about diet, improving health and, you know, optimizing nutrition. And then uh, you start reading some scary stuff about, you know, how certain foods affect the body and also then the planet and stuff like that. And it was like a long, long, uh, slow learning of nutrition that was part of it. The other thing was just in the Balkans, there's such a passion for food and hosting uh, people, making dinner parties. Um, just really hosting people at your home and, and having abundance of food and, and expressing and socializing with food and stuff like that. So these things were always present in my life. Uh, I think in big part because of my mom, because uh, she was always, uh, always cooking up amazing, diverse foods. So that was kind of the food part, but I was, I started off as a designer and I worked in communications all my life. And then as I became predominantly plant-based and uh, as that 
as my diet has shifted, I started, um, well, part of it is that I really didn't agree as in how, how brands are communicating to, to the wider audience. And I saw that there is a lot of room for improvement and empathy and inclusion there. Um, and the other part was I really started disliking client work because I used to have a design studio, still active, but I'm not active in it. And I didn't like the nature of these like quick projects for random clients that just kept happening. So I felt like I would love to surround myself with people that I enjoy being with and um, share the same or let's say similar values. And also I was very, very interested in creating a plant-based brand that wasn't so plant-based. Okay. <laughs> that okay. makes sense. So that was, that was my personal, you know, each founder would probably say their own story as to what got them in, in, in there. Um, some people have a more technical nature and are interested in innovation and, and microbiology and stuff like that. For me, a big part of it was how to express how does the brand express itself? Okay. So you say that you were a designer. Is that a clothes designer or a brand designer? No, 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 no. I, I was, uh, I was, I started with, I studied graphic design and then okay. that just evolved into the broader language of branding. So if, if we say branding, the definition of branding being a brand is, is not what you say it is. It's what other people think of you. Yeah. There's so many disciplines that go into that. But I think what I've learned the most was all things visual, like illustration, design, and copywriting. Those are the two, three skills that I worked in the past with most. Okay. Also a lot of uh, communication strategies and stuff like that. But yeah, I've been, I've been kind of furthering myself from just those disciplines. I'm okay. just interested in the whole branding sphere as to like how to... You know, it's interesting in, 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 in plant-based is because you're going against the cultural grain and there's so much tribalism. So a big part of why people are dismissing plant-based foods before they even try plant-based food is because nobody wants to exit the coolest, biggest club on earth. <laughs> and that is a very interesting aspect to me personally to, to, to think about and, and try to tackle. Yeah. I think that is also one of the most interesting things, you know, um, I mean, I suppose I've uh, I've become uh, more interested in cultivated meat as a um, uh, as a solution to a lot of problems, because I fear that that the majority of of meat eaters who are part of this kind of cool gang that, that you talk about will never will never move, you know, in order to in order to prevent them uh, mm. this, you know, the increase of meat eating throughout the world kind of causing sort of devastation to mm -hmm. various aspects of the planet and animals. You need, in order to stop them eating a burger, you need to hand them a burger that's exactly the same. But yeah, different there's a lot of there's a lot of theories as what is, of course, there's not one single solution, obviously. But yeah, cultivated meat uh, is very interesting. I don't understand completely how they think about scaling this because it's anything that I've read seems to hit a dead end 
in scenes of when you think about scaling it, it's all it doesn't seem to show that kind of promise of also sustainability as as uh, it should, uh, because you have to have these big bioreactors that first of all just building all these stainless steel pristine clean factories that require really highly educated highly trained people to operate is a big challenge so i i am i consider myself a layman but i am yet to be i don't know if the convinced is the right word i'm yet to understand how they plan on actually you know, because you need to grow to a certain amount for it to be a viable solution uh, yeah. in a relatively short uh, frame of time. Well, I've uh, I've spoken to a few people about uh, about the scaling up. Um, one of one of the interviews you might I don't know if you've heard it, but with um, someone from ReMeet, uh, mm. her name is Marie Gibbons, and she talked about uh, scaling up. And it's, I mean, it's not so much the building of the bioreactors, it's more about um, producing the, the kind of nutrients that will, that will be required to feed the bioreactors. Mm. That's the, mm. that the, uh, the hurdle. That's one thing, yeah, that the nutrients are allegedly hard to get or expensive, but then there's also the fact that if you want to, let's say, take a reactor from 1x to 10x, it doesn't necessarily yield 10x product because of how this serum functions. And this is where I'm really going out of my area of expertise. But there's quite some challenges. I, I, but I am, I, I'm not saying this as a, like I'm not supportive. I'm supportive of all these things. And I'm super excited about trying the yeah. first cultivated piece of meat yes. any day, any day. Well, it's all very exciting. And let's get back mm -hmm. to, let's get back to, your expertise so um uh i got the question I, I got the question here what why did you call yourself juicy marbles but i kind of already understand why you called yourself that i mean it's sort of you do uh, i would well, love to hear your interpretation well, <laughs> well in your in your picture you have uh in your in your brand you have a picture of the earth and obviously the obviously obviously the earth looks like a marble mm -hmm. you know from a distance and mm. also uh, the and your products. I imagine that when you eat it, it has a bit of a crunch to it. So it's mm -hmm. uh, it's like having a, a a juicy bit of marble in your in your meat. <laughs> so, uh, but and so that's what I got from your name, and I put them both together, and I kind of thought which came first. But you know, why don't you, you see, tell me? Why don't you tell yeah, me? Yeah, see, this is this is the beauty of branding because. Because you're right and this is the interpretation you have and this is how you interpret this brand and that is absolutely true because that's what you got from it and i love that you got that from it because that was definitely post naming juicy marbles we we it came together that it's all of these things however the conception of the name is much more anticlimactic or let's say less conceptual uh um le there's less grandeur in the concept because Ultimately, we were just collecting words as we were starting and playing okay. with different names. At some point, we were named Chunky Thoughts. Um, it was okay. just, we just used a different name for a week, and then we started using a different name and just seeing how it feels. And then in the end, one of the compositions of words that we like, Juicy Marbles, just kind of rolled off the tongue, and we were 
we felt good about it. And, and we knew immediately this is the one because it felt good saying it. We were playing it. And then, of course, of the marble, the marble also being the head and the brain, right? you know, like you're losing okay. your marbles. And yeah, yeah. so there's all of these yeah. connotations that we like. But ultimately, it was once we started saying it in regards to us that we were like, this, this feels right. This is our name. Well, it's very um, visual, isn't it? Which, yeah. uh, you know, you as a brand guy, you would, you know, you'd recognize that. And and also, I suppose you, you need to kind of uh, look at uh, if the if the web page is still available, if the, if the URL is still there. So kind of if you <laughs> two words and stick them together where no one stuck those words together before, you have a better... It is true. That is one of the funny realities of business these days that a lot of names that you want to give your company, you're like, ah, there's now the .com domain is taken by somebody. Yeah. And it's usually just people who just buy domains to have them mm. because they know that they might be valuable someday, which is which is an interesting yeah. uh, behavior. But yeah, yeah, that that's luckily we did not have problems with Juicy Marvels except I think it was either Twitter or one platform. We still don't have the exact uh, at Juicy Marbles. It's like with a little line underneath or something like that because there's okay. two it was two teenagers that were reviewing video games for like three months or something. They called themselves Juicy Marvels, but then I guess they left that juvenile project behind. But you, we couldn't get to them. You know, we were like trying to message them and we wanted to offer them, you know, some symbolic money to, to, to give us the domain. But they never probably just never checked that profile again okay well maybe we should do a shout out to them on this podcast if they're if you know them, yeah, yeah. we should we can call I, out for them to contact you for it was very obscure it was very obscure you could just see it was two teenagers and the name was just my you couldn't really discern who it was of course uh, these platforms cannot give away identities so we were like whatever it doesn't, it doesn't really matter it was like we got the dot com domain you can see juicy marbles written on all of our profiles so it was like not a big deal Okay, well, you probably need to hire an investigator to go and find them in there. <laughs> yeah. One day when we can afford it, we're going to hire a private detective to find those kids and give us our name. <laughs> Rough them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I, I know a little bit about your products. Why don't you tell us about your latest um, loin um, cuts? Is that is that right? Well, our life is actually now we just released the ribs. So let me just give a little uh, uh, timeline here. So we started two and a half, three years ago-ish. Uh, and we have uh, raised seed capital for our first product, which was a what we like to call the world's first marbled plant-based steak. So that was, we, used, we took uh, the shape of a filet mignon and kind of use that to get a little buzz and that was kind of the logical next step in the plant-based industry like uh, who's gonna do something that's similar to a steak that was our first product so we develop uh, we develop technology to that enables us to recreate like whole cuts complicated big whole cuts so then naturally the next thing that we did is that we took the i don't know how to call this the mother of the filet, which is the whole tenderloin. Just used the way the tender and just called it the loin. So that was our second product, which we introduced last year. And that was, I feel, 
more on brand than the first one, just in the sense that what I was talking earlier, hosting, making a plethora of recipes and just, you know, having a lot of variety in what you can do with a piece of meat. And that's what we wanted to recreate. And, you know, a steak is very suggestive as to just, you know, sizzle me and I will be a steak. While a big slab of meat, you can cut in all sorts of ways. So we wanted to give mm. uh, to anybody who is uh, dabbling in protein diversity um, a tool, you know, that enables them to do whatever they want. So that was a year ago. And uh, after that, we now, our latest product is also the Spartalo Controversy was ribs. Uh, with actual bones, which also we made edible, which all, <laughs> was part of the uh, outrage of, of many people online. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, yeah, that's we just actually made the first, because um, we used to begin launching these products with smaller drops just to get feedback and improve and then bigger drops. Ta -ta -ta. Um, so now we did the same with the ribs. We just made the first drop of a thousand pieces and now we're going to move on to bigger ones after we no, get a little feedback i mean this is uh i guess this is the interesting this is the interesting um part of your company isn't it it's that that you mm. is that you is that your products are um are you know look like meat they mm. you know, they you know they are they are, you know, when you look at them in their packaging, you look, it looks like you are buying a steak. It looks like you are buying a, a loin of meat or ribs and, and mm -hmm. the description of them with, with the, with the edible bones, <laughs> which it's, it is supposed to, um, you know, kind of fashion itself on meat. So, so you, you say you've had, it's raised some, you say it's raised some controversy. What sort of comments have you, have you received? <clears throat> Um, yeah, uh, well, generally there is still a lot of, there's this classic opinion in, in I would say in, in popular opinion, which is like, why even imitate meat? That's just, even without the edible bones and everything, this is a constant, whenever meat gets a little realistic, there is a lot of backlash, just the concept of something imitating meat seems to be um, rubbing people wrong. Um, it's kind of like appropriating somebody's culture. <laughs> it's, it, it's hard to understand. I think it's, it's just a convenient first response to, to I, I don't think there's a lot of understanding because often I see this phrase, here it goes, like, I don't understand why vegans who hate meat so much want to eat something that looks like meat. And the beginning is the most interesting part to me. It's like, I don't understand. And to that person, I would ask, did you try to understand? Because <laughs> yeah. it's not that hard to understand. I would also feel uncomfortable asking, did you try to understand? Because I, I don't want to be condescending to anybody, yeah. but that is ultimately, that is the question. Because if you have a conversation with anybody, a vegan or somebody who's just cutting down on meat, Everybody, almost everybody has spent majority of their life being raised on meat and just loved the flavor, the texture, the sensory experience of meat is awesome. There's mm. no denying that. And it just makes sense. Like, okay, so if raising beef is, is not just a environmental disaster, but a humanitarian disaster, 
then maybe let's make something that's similar in the sensory experience and then try to slowly shift away. It's not a, like a big deal. It's like, it's, at the times, it's so funny to me. It's so tribal. It's like just, you know, you can try it. If you don't like it, you don't have to really eat yeah. it. Um, it seems like you are you are creating a, pro a product that sort of bridges the gap between vegetarianism and meat eating so it's you know you get the you get the feeling that, you know it's for meat eaters really isn't it mm. perhaps it's not for vegetarians or vegans perhaps. i personally like to say it's for anybody who likes that sensory experience but yeah you know like i i would say that again most people have started their life as a meat eater so it's a it's a experience that you grow to like and we all know why it's it's great it, it's juicy. It's it's easy to make. You know, you don't have to do much. You, a little sprinkle of, of salt, put it on a pan, and you have a amazing source of protein. Right, a lot of energy, good flavors. It, it's an enjoyable experience. So, why? It's because it's a good experience. And if you want something that's, you know, I don't want to go into ethics. Right. It's it's there are plenty of reasons, uh, even selfish ones, that why one should perhaps dab in protein diversity but a, a, a topic that is rarely mentioned is is based it's, it's the one that i uh, talked earlier uh briefly is then humanitarian issue right so it it takes uh 80 percent of food that we grow from earth we feed to livestock mm. 80 percent of our grown food goes to livestock in return in return we get 17 percent of worldwide calories yeah yeah even worse beef is 60 percent versus two percent of calories so very inefficient in feeding uh, uh humans on a, on a on this scale where we are now and we now have 1.9 billion people over 1.9 billion people who don't have food security and about 800 million people who are uh, malnourished. And we could solve that already now by a different distribution of the food system. And I really, it pains me that that's not almost the central subject because maybe that would be something that people consider, because I do understand it's hard to empathize with the different species. It's hard to even empathize with a different tribe of people with somebody who seems different to you. It really, like, empathy is very spotlightish, right? It works to similar people to us. And so it's not hard for me to understand why people have trouble empathizing with animals. It, it is difficult, especially to hold that viscerally in your head. Because I've, I've had a lot of friends come to me and say, man, yesterday I watched this documentary. I'm never eating meat again. Three days later, they're back on the meat wagon. And I'm not saying that judgmentally, but it's just like... The, you, you can't live by forcing this thought into your head and reprogramming yourself. It takes a lot of devotion to say, I'm going to reprogram myself to, to feel empathy for this creature that I don't see every day. I don't hear, I don't know. You know, it's, so it's, it's, it's difficult. Yes, it's difficult. I think that's, that's the point, isn't it? It's kind of difficult mm. for people to stop eating meat because they kind of think mm. being a vegetarian is complicated you know they kind of think mm. it's going to sort of take a lot a, a, you know kind of a lot of changes to their life and to their, and to their it will lives. and and they're right 
Well, it, it is hard. I, I want to say that it is hard. It is hard because a lot of eating, it's easy to switch your diet at home, but a lot of eating is social. And I struggle with restaurants because the offering of plant-based foods in restaurants is usually that one or two dishes that the chef reluctantly made because there is a trend, you know? So it is harder because sometimes you don't want to eat that risotto that every restaurant has for the vegans or that, or or a plant-based burger, right? Because that was, you know, when the, when plant-based burgers became realistic, uh, that was the go-to solution for restaurants to cater to plant-based needs. But like, you don't always want a burger. There's so much creativity in food that needs to be addressed. So it is hard because we're not talking about a simple dietary change. We're talking about a cultural shift and it will take time. You know, like 10 years ago, they were like 10, 15 years, the world will be vegan. And I'm like thinking in what reality, in what reality does such a over, overhaul of society happened in such a short time unless of course the ozone was already burning or something and then maybe (laughs) but i don't it's 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 very very complicated i've been you know studying this for a decade and over and i'm still beginning to grasp of how intricate such a change would be Mm. so i totally get it why why it's hard and that's why i think like you know we need to just keep going at it and have a lot, you know, Juicy Marbles is, is one solution. It's like we make, let's say, realistic-ish steaks. You know, I think in 10, 20 years, we're going to look at this and say this was the Minecraft of meat in some regards, you know. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not like an exact replica, but let's say in a lot of the sensory aspects, it's almost there, whatever, you know, doesn't matter. Um, uh, sorry, I was like, what was I saying already? So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, it's kind of a generational thing, perhaps, isn't it? It's, mm. You know, we are at a strange inflection point in, in our history in, in that there are an awful lot of people um, of a certain age that have held on to uh, beliefs that's, that's, um, that, you know, they've had for kind of 60, 70 years. And, but there is a... You know, there is a kind of bubbling of of the of the youth that's you know there's a lo- a much higher percentage of vegetarians and vegans in the in the kind of generation Z. Um, mm. So uh, you the know, question is the question is should we be promoting veganism or should we be promoting uh, sensible eating or I don't know what the phrase would be because I think people when you tell them go vegan they see it as a tribal invite. Uh, so I think you cannot present the most extreme form of, uh, personality, identity, tribal change and, and, and advertise that and then think that people are going to be, yeah, sure. It's far out. Yeah. I'm not saying I don't agree with, I think most people agree with the principles of veganism, right? Nobody wants harm, all that. It's, it's, it's totally agreeable. Yeah, but in its in its purest form, it is very unattainable. So an invitation to that is very hard to accept, I think, for a lot of people. So that's why I'm wondering, like, what is this softer approach that leads to people maybe thinking 80-20, 90-10? I don't know, you know, like, just maybe eat mostly plant-based, but don't 
constrain yourself because I do think gradual change is going to happen. Anybody who thinks that people are just going to go zero one, I don't think I have trouble talking to those people because <laughs> I don't think we have the same understanding of reality because it's in an ideal in an ideal world maybe, but it's 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 a lot to 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 ask of society that has also you know when we talk about this change that is necessary it took me a long time to research things to find you know like uh how do i find tasty recipes it, it took me a while and i consider myself being a privileged person to have so much time to research to eat a solid plant-based nurturing diet that maintains my health it mm -hmm. takes a second right and i think a lot of people don't think that maybe a lot of people are struggling socioeconomically or otherwise, or even just emotionally in this world. And it's a hard ask also because of that. So there's all these factors, you know, it's like you know, when you're working week to week and you have like a couple of children to feed, you're not going to take time to explore new recipes and diets. Yeah. You're going to go for the cheap sources of protein and carbs and that's it. You're going to eat what you're used to, I suppose, aren't you? Because it's, exactly. it's, it's yeah. comfortable for you. But but mm. also, I suppose it's sort of dealing with the uh, media landscape, isn't it? Because um, I spoke to um, uh, the the uh, CEO at Compassion in World Farming, Philip Limbury, and he, mm. he, um, mm. he described cultivated meat, for example, as the renewable energy of, uh, you know, equivalent... And there mm. is, uh, and that that because of that, I suppose it's going to face a sort of media backlash. You know, there's going to be mm. a lot of kind of, uh, you know, sort of, you know, some misinformation about the um, the effects of 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 uh, of you know animal farming and the rest of it. And and I mean, my a, a relative of mine a few weeks ago kind of told me that he read somewhere on Facebook that kind of veganism is worse for the planet than kind of meat eating. So, you know, you, you know, this information is out there and it's being, it's being spread around and people who read it, believe it like they will mm. what they're told. So yeah. Cause you're, you're, you're looking for stuff that's going to fortify your worldview. And uh, there's a lot of potent messages about veganism. And uh, yeah, the, the classical strategy is like Vincent's cigarettes and then petroleum. It's, so it's not debunk the 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 theory. It's like add doubt as to that yeah. theory being valid. That's right. So it's like you know all these articles about nu nutrients and and vegans who are weak and all of that and 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 it, you you easily believe it because you want to believe it and it sounds plausible. I also had a conversation about climate change with a couple of older Republicans, um, and it, it was. It was a great conversation all in all, like with them. And, and it wasn't a divisive tone at all. But uh, we did steer away from actually diving deeper because uh, it was, I mean, they nailed me with an argument that I knew I don't even want to go into. And they asked me because they don't believe that humans are causing the climate change. So they just asked me a question, which was a perfect summary, uh, uh, which you cannot argue with. So the question was the following. Do you think we are bigger than nature? 
so there's a lot of implications and then if, if you answer yeah i don't think we are it's over right so there's a lot of these very simple explanations that are really they do sound logical they they feel comfortable believing in yeah that are just flowing around as little bits of let's say misinformation or just questions of doubt that reinforce old worldviews and prevent people from being like maybe maybe I should consider this new notion. It sort of boils down to what people want to believe. If people want to, mm. believe, I mean, I've flown over. I mean, if if you've ever flown into um, sort of South America or into you know anywhere or into Southeast Asia, and as the as your plane is coming into land, you see. You know, you can see a mile of plastic up against the beach and you can't and you can't deny that you've seen that because it's there, mm. you know, and mm. and people must know, you know, people must know that there is a lot of plastic in the world. They must know that there are things that there are things mm. um, that kind of take some attention. But mm. they um, but yes, it's it's a kind of acceptable worldview that they don't want to. Uh, they, they don't want to rock it. They just want it to stay the same. They want everything to stay as it as it is. But anyway, I think we're getting off the subject a little bit. You you were yeah, you were right. You you. Let's, I'd like to talk about the branding actually of Juicy Mom. Mm. I I've been looking for someone to kind of talk to about being mm. better. You know, with the mm. based food and and cultivated meat putting forward the correct sort of narrative, you, you know, you know, what is it? I mean, you know, you talked about kind of creating uh, a cool gang that people want to be in. And is that, mm. is that really kind of what you're going for in your branding? Perhaps? Um, I think that there's a lot of different trains of thought that sometimes are hard to discern, but they're all influenced. But I would say a lot of it, a lot of it was wanting to not take ourselves too seriously. Mm. Um, so I think, uh, this definition of comedy, uh, uh, I really like, uh, what was his name already? Uh, I can't remember it right now, but it's like comedy is the art, uh, of telling the truth about what it's like to be human. Yeah. There's something very true about that. And, you know, comedy alleviates the pain of existence and it kind of comedy can look at society very critically, very, very critically, but still see the beauty in it and forgive it, right? So I think this boldness and how we express ourselves as a brand comes from this just uh, desire to uh, not just add a unnecessary seriousness to life in general because in the end we're just people who are doing business and we go to the office and we are hanging out with each other and doing a brand like this is much more fun for us and i think also for people who are experiencing it but you know again you start with what, how you want to work and how you want to approach things and i just i part of what i didn't like about client work was just this uh worship of seriousness as some kind of ultimate goal of human existence and i think a lot of it is just trying to, to to be easygoing about that and i think when you look at the world and how much division there is i feel like there should be some voices that find 
middle ground and be able to look at both sides and laugh. You know, like we're we're often also critical of vegans and and um, or let's say we like to look at this through both lenses, right? So compassionate also towards people who are meat eaters, not not in a condescending sense, but you know, understanding that it's it's a hard journey, and then also understanding the vegan aspect, which is why I mean, I guess we're making up such a product, right? So where is this in between ground? And that's, again, like connecting the tribes and, and uh, all of these things seem like very lofty goals, but I'm sure there is, there is that, you know, that is a North Star that is guiding us. And there's a lot to be discovered in how to actually do that. But it, the beginning was definitely rooted in, in, in comedy, uh, in this definition of comedy that I just told you. So what have you found? I mean, have you found many obstacles with your um, with your product at all? I mean, what's the uptake? Is it um, it's it's uh, it's on the market now, clearly. What's the. Um, yeah. Yeah. Take like um, the market has actually been responding really nicely. I think the biggest challenge is figuring out how to go to market and optimizing production, these kind of boring backend stuff of, of business and figuring out processes. You know, when you're a company of 10 people, it's one thing and then it's 15 people, it's a new thing. So it's a lot of that. And then, you know, none of us has, have ever launched a CPG brand. So we are, are just in the void, <laughs> figuring out. And each of these either food service, distributors, retailers, it's all new. And there are these, these societies or tribes, they function in different ways than we think they do. And there's a lot of assumptions that we make that need to be dismantled. And I think that is the biggest challenge. I think there's always gonna be a market for, for products. Uh, you know, when you think about the supermarket, there's just so much crap. And that was always kind of some uh, a comforting thought to me. It's like, look at all this absolute garbage pretending to be food which is killing it out there so i'm not trying to diss on our product but i think you know the bar is very low so i don't think going to market is such a problem as it is figuring out how to do business in a healthy way that doesn't destroy you and that you know has good margins and all that i think that's definitely the biggest challenge so your product it's um it it's uh it is a plant based alternative meat, but I mean, would you say it's a it's a healthy product? I would. Uh, I usually refrain calling any food healthy, because you know, let's say, let's say kale is healthy. You're not gonna live on kale alone. You need a diverse diet. That's why I don't like this healthy foods paradigm at all. You have to have a diverse diet. Our product is full of micronutrients and uh, macronutrients that your body needs. And we're only going to add more in the future and, and really make a full package. Um, don't want to go too much into that. But it is absolutely totally fine to eat. You can eat it a lot even. There is nothing harmful in there. Um, but I would not recommend to eat any food every day. I would recommend to any person to think about diet sensibly, try to eat as many different colorful foods as possible. And that's, you know, that's why I'm, I'm reluctant to say this is a health food, right? I, but I would be reluctant to say about blueberries, about anything at all, that it's a health food mm -hmm. because that creates this perception of like this product alone. 
can do things that other yeah. products cannot, you know. And yes. yeah, and I would urge people for everybody, to everybody you uh, must have a balanced diet. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, there is no worries about eating a product even often, but please eat as many foods as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And how can I? Um, I don't know whether it's uh, it's a secret or not. But how do you get the bone effect then in your uh, in your in your food? Oh, you mean um, so? How do we make the the bones, the the ribs? It's yeah. really it's it's uh, it's just made out of dehydrated protein. It's okay. uh, predominantly soy protein. That uh, it's fairly fairly easy to make. Okay. There's not much more to it. Uh, so we just hardened some protein and uh there's some ideas that we might flavor it uh so that you can maybe cook a broth with it but that's we'll see how sensible that is at this scale we also have to see how people respond mm. to bones in the first place okay. um we're going to do a little research and see like the pardon me the people even eat them because we said they're edible you know like you can sizzle them and fry them and it's like a crispy protein snack but it is a very novel idea, you know, I acknowledge that. It's like weird. Um, mm. And usually people are not very receptive to disruptions to something that is already very well established, such as, you know, you eat the meat off the bone and the bone goes away. So this is quite weird, but we were in the last moment, like as, this, as we were going through the process of developing ribs and bone, we're like, man, this is protein. Let's try and eat it. So we tried it raw and it was like, meh, no, it's all right. But it's like, I wouldn't really recommend it to anybody. But then we fried it a little bit and sizzled it on oil and it puffed up. And we were like, man, this is, this is not bad at all. You know, like, especially if you throw a little seasoning, nice. So we said, you know, let's tell people it's edible and see what happens. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I heard from, I, I heard from someone that the blood effect for a lot of these dishes is from beetroot. Is that is that what you use? It, we're not doing the blood effect necessarily. I don't know if any brand really is. Um, I think that was more like a niche little marketing by Impossible Foods very early on because right. I don't see any, any brand communicating bleeding. Uh, and it's also real meat also doesn't actually bleed. There's just juiciness. The beetroot is really just a colorant. It just provides that meaty color without too much of, uh, you know, intervention in, in flavors and, and sensory um, yeah. behavior of the product. So it's a convenient color. Okay. But as a final, um, as a final question, I just want to ask you if mm -hmm. you have any, uh, if you have any predictions for the future of um, plant-based food or cultivated meat, I mean, uh, probably more plant-based food. I am, I am very reluctant in in the in the realm of of predictions. I have hopes. Okay. I have hopes. Okay. Uh, what are your hopes? <laughs> my hopes are that the narrative changes and that people become a bit more curious in just trying out stuff without the tribal prejudice. I do hope that meat, animal meat, loses its subsidies and has to actually fight off, you know, fight it out in the ring of the free market um, without the taxpayer aid. I do hope that because if we stop subsidizing meat with our taxpayer money, 
it's going to become a ultra premium food immediately. And then a lot of positive change will ensue because <laughs> it's already becoming more and more expensive, but it's still ludicrously cheap as to how hard it is to produce it. So I think it should, I, I hope there will be some legislation that says, you know what, if we're really doing this free market thing, let's actually, let's actually do it. Let's, let's see how viable animal agriculture really is without billions of subsidies every year. I mean, this is an industry that doesn't even have to turn a profit to turn a profit. It is ridiculous. So that is my hope. But, you know, to make a prediction in that realm, yeah, you know, there are very... a few, uh, there are a few um, countries that, are, that are, are heading towards that, aren't there? And, you know, Scandinavian countries, I think, are, are quite forward thinking in the, in the... But are, are they doing that or are they giving like a carbon tax? Because I've heard a lot about the carbon tax. I haven't heard a lot about just removing the subsidies from I don't think industry. They're remove, I don't think they're removing the subsidies, but they are, um, but, you know, they are encouraging more plant-based food in yeah, the, yeah. As part of their food program. Um, yeah, I don't think, I, I don't have high hopes for that. Hmm. I, you know, and especially seeing like how people approach communication. So imagine you're like a PR communicator for a governmental institution and you get a brief to uh, tell people that they should eat more plant-based. And you don't even eat plant-based, maybe, probably. Uh, and you've never really delved into the intricacies or considered the intricacies of how hard it is to communicate such a shift to people. And then most likely what will happen, they will take these low-hanging fruits of communication, which are very moralistic. It's usually what happens with these, you know, like they're going to make a cute little slogan, you know, uh, or like meat free Monday or these little, yeah. it's just very ineffective. I think, you know, that's, it's, and, and the problem I see with that is you're again, shifting the responsibility to the end consumer to the people. And I do not like that notion. I think this is why we have institutions. And if they have the data and it's clear that everybody wants real change to combat, people are gonna get used to it. You remove the subsidies, meat becomes expensive. It's gonna take a year, even less. People are gonna, people are gonna be fine in a month because it's just gonna be a new reality and it's going to be communicated Look, this is what is happening. It's tough, but we have to do tough things right now. But because I guess people in charge, they want to nurture their voters. They don't want to, you know, push any buttons. Um, these flaccid solutions are being proposed. Let's let's you know let's let's buy all the billboards in a city and you know like make a white poster with green little leaves and talk about responsibility of each one of one of us. I, I am sick of that. <laughs> I really, I really think that we need institutional change. All these recycle this, put a bottle away. That is all these things are like it's all on us. They're like we're dealing with enough. You are in charge. You have the data. Implement. We will follow. We have voted for you. We are already there. Just do it. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's about money for them as well, isn't it? It's about kind of donations. But but I mean, now we have, uh, you know, we sort of have Jeff Bezos on the side of, uh, uh, at least on the side of Cultivated Me. I hear that he's, he's mm. about to invest like a billion pounds in European sort of, mm. in, in European Cultivated Meat. So more, you know, more of that kind of money, obviously, is going to make a big difference, isn't it? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I don't know what a billion does. No, I mean it's, a, it's certainly uh, it's certainly a lot more than the twelve million that the UK government gave to the industry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean if you look at the subsidies, they are ridiculous. Like per yeah. year, uh, meat gets thirty eight billion, yeah. uh, and and fruit and veg gets seventeen million. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it makes it makes no sense. Here are the health foods, which get like a little sprinkle. And farmers, you know, they have it really tough. That's also a subject that people don't. Farmers are so disenfranchised uh, that they they go where the subsidies are. A lot of them, you know. And in Slovenia, for instance, here, man, it's like cornfield after cornfield is popping up. Um, Fifteen years ago, I was on a photo assignment and. I was uh, taking photos for Interspar of uh, different uh, animal agriculture uh, um, people. And they had also these other farms. And one, one was explaining that he has to quit his whole family business and go into corn okay. because uh, he needs that for survival because there are no buyers and, and the system regulates the prices, right? So you as a farmer, you have no power unless you are a gargantuous mm. as a farm and living on, on these razor thin margins to survive and usually with a lot of your production being just subsidized and then when subsidies change you change your farm mm. so these kind of things you know it's it, there's i think that there's a lot of solutions already exist but yeah it's it's hard to pinpoint uh what exactly is preventing actual change you know we did you know ban straws and it's like 10 years now we're like congratulations you know the straws and everybody like out of all of the things it's like man paper straws are not even a good solution environmentally um so vlad uh uh it's been lovely talking to you this is um, thank you likewise uh been great and very informative thank you very much it's been an honor